2: welcome back to life out loud a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true maybe all too true stories i am maoli one of your hosts today back again super excited to be here with you all
0: and i'm edward also back again and excited for this third episode of the second season
1: and i'm karen yes we're back for the third episode of season two with even more stories from one new author and two others you may already be familiar with Thank you for joining us for episode three entitled Taking Care of Business, an episode dedicated to the hustle of three young authors as they get a taste in their different ways of what it means to work. And in each of the stories, the authors seem to grow up through this work in some way or another.
0: So let's get started. Our first piece of the night is by a new author here at Life Out Loud, Michael Filipino. Michael Filipino is a 22-year-old senior at John Jay, majoring in English and minoring in philosophy. Raised in Brooklyn, New York, he began his academic career at John Jay with the intention of going to law school. However, Michael never thought in a million years that he'd be majoring in English, as someone who did very horribly in English literature studies in middle school and high school. Shortly after he began studying literature, Michael's life changed forever, and since then, he has no regrets about declaring a major in English. Inspired by fiction and nonfiction writing alike, Michael currently is the vice president of Ink, The Quill, John Jay's creative
3: writing club.
1: Awesome. Let's take a listen to Michael's piece.
3: Piccati del Padre. The phone rings and, as always, he hesitates to answer. However, he figures he should be a good son and do so, no matter how exasperating it'll be. The young man takes a deep breath. He prepares himself as the ringtone sounds a second time. He answers. Hello? The conversation always begins the same. Hi, Michael, says the older man on the phone, who shares the same voice as the younger one. Hey, Dad, the younger always responds, deadpan. For a moment, the father and son discuss the usual things, like how each other's days went etc. The son finds himself feeling tense. He knows he'll ask soon, but he figures he still has a few minutes of fake pleasantries. But the father cuts to the chase fast this time, and this throws the son off guard. How's the situation with your working going? He'd usually wait a little bit in the conversation to bring it up, or sometimes he'd segue into it through some kind of clever anecdote about how when he was the son's age, he worked six jobs. Six more than his son ever had. But the son had not spoken to the father for almost a week. So it seemed he had to make up for lost time. Cut right to the chase. When are you going to find something? The father follows up his, the first question fast. Assuming there's no progress, he jumps right to asking about the future. He's expecting a wrong answer. The son can tell. Soon, responds the son. As expected, the answer doesn't satisfy the father. The six second silence proves that. The son silently scoffs and shifts a bit on his bed into a more comfortable position, his eyes fixed upon the ceiling. If he's going to hear his father begin his usual rant about the merits of working, he needed to at least be in a comfortable position. You know, Michael, Begins the father, right on cue. It's not good to be 19 years old and have no job. I worked several jobs when I was your age. You really have no excuse. You need to start acting like a man, Michael. As the father continues his tirade, the son reaches into his pocket and pulls out a piece of paper. Be a man, the father says again, for emphasis. Like you, the son thinks. Like the son gives a shit anymore what the father thinks of him? Thinks of what he wants to do with his life? The son remembers a time when he could name every single dinosaur in the encyclopedia book. How his father loved that. How proud he was. Wow, the father would say. That's awesome. What do you want to be when you grow up? The son's answer was always the same. A paleontologist, he'd answer. The father always seemed to think... Being a paleontologist was a good idea. At least, he thought that back then. You think I'd be a good paleontologist, Dad? Of course, the father would always answer. Just be a man, okay? The son hears his father say, faintly. He's distracted by the paper from his pocket. He runs his fingers along its perforated edge. The son realizes his father is about to run out of breath and that it's his turn to say something. You're right, says the son. I really don't have an excuse, do I? The son smiles as he says this, and the father instantly detects the sarcasm. You know, this isn't a fucking joke, Michael. Seriously. Do I need to explain to you once again how things work in life? Oh, please, use small words. I'm not nearly as bright as you, the son quickly responds. The son expects another swig of awkward silence, but instead he hears his father laugh over the phone and then say, I should think fucking not. According to the father, 15 is the official age that boys should start working a full-time job, even if they're completely committed to high school, which the son had certainly been at that age. When I was your age, the father would say over and over again that year. I lived with three of my friends in a two-bedroom apartment and worked a full-time job, so I don't want to hear any excuses. From that point forward, anytime the son needed something, any he explained why, the father accused him of making excuses. Get a job and buy it yourself, he would always say. This didn't bother the son very much, until one day he called the father asking him if he could buy a neck for a guitar on eBay that he was building in school. Can you please get it for me? I'll even pay you back for it. The son didn't want to tell his father that the guitar he was building was for him, that he didn't have a credit card, and that he wasn't old enough to make an eBay account. He just wanted to surprise him for his 45th birthday, and everything else was ready to be assembled. All he needed was the neck. He'd remembered the guitars his father had bought him when he was a kid, how they jammed together. How his father would look proud of his progress. How he taught him everything he knew. How he always said to forget about any of that music theory shit. This would be the perfect birthday gift, the son had thought one day. Realizing that they barely played together anymore. The perfect gift. If only the son could get it his fucking self. His mother didn't have the money to get it for him on time, and so... The father's 45th birthday present went unfinished. A year later, the son's teacher, who was in charge of the guitar-building program, finally told him, Michael, I'm sorry, but if you don't get a neck, you can't finish this guitar. Just sell the thing, or let another student finish it, the son said. By that time, the son did have the money to buy the neck for the guitar. I have two guitars anyway, he told his teacher. It's really not that big of a deal. That was a lie, but the son didn't care. Once the son started college, the father began to say things like, You're really a man now, more and more, as if the son didn't know, as if he needed the father to constantly remind him. Yes, I know, Dad, the son would answer. As the son became busier with school, the visits to his father lessened where once the father and the son spoke on the phone almost every day for years. Now they only spoke maybe twice a week, if that. Oh, why don't you call your father more often? The son's mother would ask him. I mean, he's obviously an asshole, but he's still your dad. Don't call him an asshole, the son had said once, almost on instinct. The son gets up from his bed and begins to put his shoes on. The phone call conversation timer counts, 23 minutes and 55 seconds. It's 4.30. If I'm going to deposit this check, I better do it now before the bank closes, the son thinks to himself, as his father continues his platitude. To maintain the illusion of attention, the son says, "Mm Mm-hmm, here and there, between his father's sentences, as he rushes down the stairs. You and your stupid generation think you have some kind of silly entitlement not to work, and that everything is supposed to be handed to you. It's rather disgusting. He continues on and on and on. The father is so absorbed in his speech that he doesn't hear the slight gust of wind blow into the phone. For a second, the son tries to defend his generation. Dad, there are many people my age and younger who bust their asses in order to make ends meet. You can't just say that everybody is like me. Well, you're somewhat wrong there, Michael. And here's why, replies the father. But the son is barely listening now. have a fun ghoul. I'll get to the fucking point already, the son thinks to himself. Back when I was your age, we kids were humble. We didn't go around flaunting what we thought was our rights and what we thought we should have in life. We just sucked it up and got shit done. End of fucking story he still can't believe the son doesn't have a job. Just be a man, Michael. The son notices that the ATM is silent, and that makes him smile as he deposits his first paycheck. I guess there's no hope for me or my generation after all, says the son, when the father finally stops talking. Well, you can at least change that about yourself, Michael. That's all I want for you. I'll do my best, Dad says the son. To that, the father just says, I hope so. Eventually, the son and the father reach a conclusion in their phone call, and the father promptly says, I love you, but remember what I've told you, okay? The son responds as if on cue. Humility, initiative, yep, got it, dad. As the father and the son hang up, the son checks the total time of the phone call, which has now reached one hour, one minute, and thirty-four seconds. Who are you talking to this whole time? His mom asks when he gets back from the ATM. Who else? The son responds. Oh, that asshole, says the mother, rolling her eyes. What the fuck did he want? The usual. Did you at least tell him you've been working? No. The son answers. I let him have his fun. Maybe I'll tell him tomorrow, he thinks. After all, the son is a good son and needs to be a man.
1: Oh my goodness. Let him have his fun. That's incredible. Michael, thank you so much for being here. Thank, thank, you, thank you, you for so having much me for sharing that with us. That's really wow. We've never had a story this bluntly about this Father, son, dynamic, and like fully immersed around manhood like that mm. that's incredible, thank you, yeah, thank you so much for like think <laughs> just thank you so much for like bringing this story to us no so I have to ask, as many people would probably want to ask you at the end of this, did you tell your father the next day about your job
3: well the the funny part about that is that um it was kind of like you know I didn't tell him. Mm -hmm. that I was, I've deposited my paycheck because he was so absorbed. Like, you don't understand, like, I tried to, like, emulate it as much in the story. But the thing is, like, when he gets on his tangents, my dad, he gets, like, so absorbed that, like, you know, he doesn't even, he doesn't even, like, process everything else that goes on around him. Mm -hmm. So... The next day, you know, he brought it up again because he was he was for that that day, ironically enough, like he was so like livid about himself. Like he was so caught up in himself and he got into it again. He's like, oh, you know, Michael, uh, you know, I just want to make sure like you understand everything I was talking about. Blah, 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 blah. And he's like for like a good half hour. He's talking about this again. And I'm just sitting on the phone, like holding holding the phone out like <laughs> like like five, like two feet as long as my arm. Just like, uh-huh. And every five seconds, I put my phone to my hand, and be like, "Uh huh, uh huh, oh yeah, my god, uh huh." Like you know, and I finally said, "You know, Dad, not for nothing. Uh, I just want to let you know. Uh, I've I've been working." He's like, "Oh, where?" I was, I was like, "Oh, uh, I was working at. Uh, I was working as a tutor at the time, and you know, I had. Uh, I was helping my neighbor teach. I uh, not teach. I was. Uh, I was helping my neighbor's kids study." And, uh, I was studying, I was helping him study for like a month. He says, every week you come, you work for me and then I'll pay you in the month. So he wrote me a check for $400 for four weeks. So it was it wasn't a lot back then, but it was something. So, so I said to him, I was like, oh, you know, I was tutoring my, uh, my neighbor's kid and, you know, he wrote me a check for $400 and I've been, I've been doing it for, uh, the past couple of weeks and I'm going to get paid again. He's like, oh, Okay. And then the next thing was, oh, well, how are you going to save your money? What are you going to do? <laughs> oh, my I'm God. I'm like, oh, so come it on. it never you ends. Yeah, I was like, are you kidding wow. me?
1: It almost doesn't surprise me. Because you can have this success and you can prove to your dad that you can do something like this. And then you find something else to kind of hound you about. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so another interesting thing about the story is that it's told in this third person limited perspective where... You don't say the names. We know that it's, you know, you and your father, but you don't say the names. And you also only tell it from your point of view or the point of view of son. So why did you choose that? Why did you make that decision?
3: Uh, It wasn't so much of like, oh, I want to write in this perspective. It was just kind of, uh, it just kind of seemed to fit the situation more than more than like first person or something like that i mean i didn't really put much thought into it when i did it it was just kind of like you know i'll just write it in uh, in third person because i just figured it would work it would just work better that way mm-hmm. and then uh, professor Badrazo told me you know this is in third person limited and i'm like oh this is interesting and then i kind of looked it up a bit more and i read a few other pieces afterward about it and it was it was really interesting but yeah i mean I, I didn't really put much thought into it or anything like that. So, but yeah, it was, overall, it seemed to have worked well. I'm glad you yeah. enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, it it definitely worked really well for this piece, that it came so naturally to you. And also, in class, you, you might have been inspired by some of the second-person the second perspectives that were spoken about, but yours took it to, a, like, a different level, hmm. where it's third and it's also limited. So it's not totally, where it's not totally omniscient, But it is for one of the characters. And it's just, yeah, it it worked really well.
3: Thank you.
0: Another thing that I really loved was the contrast between your relationship with your father during your childhood and your relationship with your father when you get older. And how in this piece you abruptly interrupt the nice childhood memory with your dad's voice. Just be a man, okay? So can I ask you, how is your relationship with your father today?
3: it's good uh, we've, uh we have we still talk uh i had after that i uh, had gotten a a better job that i worked for a little bit and right after like in the in the interim time between that i was an intern and my dad really wants me to to go to law school and that was a decision i made for myself so so he was pretty happy about that and I was telling him about the internship and all the experience I was I was making. And the first question he obviously asked was, "Oh, well, did they pay you?" Uh. I'm like, "Well, well, e- yeah, but inexperience, experience, you know. Yeah. But uh <laughs> but uh, you know, I had I had worked something else over the summer. Uh my mom who had worked on Wall Street, she had actually gotten me a job through a friend of hers and I was like I was cold calling for a bit. I was only getting paid like like $20 a day and then uh my my boss he kind of he kind of took a liking to me he's like, "You know what I have a better job for you mm-hmm. so he uh instead of like cold calling like uh investors, it was kind of like cold calling brokers and insurance insurance brokers managers and um what was the other one investment bankers to uh to come work at this uh this investment firm it was called white and weld it was uh it's like a, a stock Broking firm, and it's been around since, like, 1890 or something like that, and it was my job to, like, call them and uh, and just, like, try to convince them to come work, to, like, send their resume over, and it was only, oh, it was part-time, it was three days a week, hundred fifty dollars a day, 150 a week, really, but the... The incentive to it was that for every person, whether it whether it was an insurance broker or if it was a uh, an investment banker or just a stockbroker in general, if you got them to send their resume to any one of the offices throughout the country and get a job like they get hired, the person who like recommended them, who got them the job, like who called them, gets like a five hundred a five hundred dollars check for every time. so i had I did that over the summer, and I got two people so i ended up making like a thousand dollars on top of like everything else i was making so i told my dad about that and he thought it was cool but he had a background in wall street he's like you know michael you gotta hustle when you're on wall street you know i mean it was just non-stop i mean he was obviously proud of it but it, it, it was just annoying i mean to answer your question not to beat around the bush uh eh, yeah, we still have a pretty good relationship. Now that I'm graduating college soon, and I'm gonna head to law school, he's uh, he's he's kind of gotten a bit more understanding. Mm-hmm. And plus, my stepsister started college, so he's he didn't really see the process with me when I was when I was young, when I was 18, and I started going to college because I didn't really see him that often. I lived I live in Brooklyn, and he lived all the way in Staten Island, like almost close close to New Jersey. So I really didn't. That was that was the point where. I really didn't see him that often so you know in that beginning time he really didn't see the process but now you know incidentally enough it's not because of me it's because of my stepsister going to college (laughs) it's it's that uh, he sees the process you know he sees how it's going he knows it's not as simple as oh you know go to college and work like it's it doesn't work that way obviously so so I guess overall he's kind of a bit more understanding of it although he still can be a pain in my ass (laughs)
2: That's so funny.
3: Yeah. So um, what would you say
0: to all the young people out there, you know, struggling to find work, like caught up in the hustle? Um, and to all the young people being pressured by their parents as well to find jobs, to be like getting their life together and what what not? What your father like was kind of done with you. What would you like tell them as like an advice or something?
3: I don't really know. You know, the, That's th- okay too. the thing is, the way I see it is that you know, I could give advice, but it applies only to me. You mm-hmm. know, I feel like everybody is different in their own way. You know, yeah. and it's not that. I I wish I could say like, oh, do this, do that, but it's it's not that simple because you know, I was kind of lucky in my situation. You know, I had I had both parents who who worked and did things. Some people don't have that luxury. So if I if I wanted to say, oh, you know what, just worry about yourself, when it's not possible in a situation where you know if somebody if somebody has a job and is working you know that extra three three hundred four hundred even five hundred dollars a week you know that really that really helps things out you know and I've I've been in a situation like that like before when my mother didn't have a job for a while and she started working you know that time when she was working and making money you know it really it really helped things out so I mean, I could say, you know, just don't give a shit what your parents say, but, you know, it's not that simple, obviously, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Is. So, I mean, as f- I, I can't really give a straight answer to that question, unfortunately, because it, it is kind of complex, but overall, I would say just, I guess, assess the situation and see what the best course of action is, you know, that's all I could really say about that. I think that. that's a great address. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, on that note, we want to thank you for being here again, and thank, thank you. you for this story thank you for having me yeah and thank you for admitting that it's okay not to have all the answers like that (laughs) (laughs) like that's you know it's refreshing sometimes but yeah thank you Michael
3: thank you thank you so much
1: Our second piece of the night gives new meaning to our title, Taking Care of Business. And you'll see what we mean by that when you listen to this story by a returning author here at Life Out Loud, Melissa Gady. Melissa is 20 years old and studying at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. She's currently working on being an English major, but has not decided on a career path yet. Most of her time is spent studying or working at Stop and Shop, but in her downtime, she enjoys reading manga and playing video games. Let's take a listen to Melissa's piece entitled number 11.
4: I hate going to school. The lessons are interesting sometimes, but everything else, my classmates especially, can be overwhelming. The shrieks and squeals resonate throughout the classroom. The massive glob of second graders converge in the corner of the room. The serenade of affection is directed at a cardboard box, that which traps the frenzied attention. I orbit around the mass, delicately moving my slight weight to the tip of my toes. I attempt to see over my mountainous classmates. I can hear it. The chirping causes a tidal wave of giggling and exclamations. I can't make myself tall enough to fully see the fluffy animals in the box but I can hear their squeaks. Finally, I catch a glimpse of the light yellow blurs of fluff which form a moving carpet over the wood shavings. I can't get the others to move out of my way and it would be rude to push, apparently. I finally see the reward for my patience as the mass parts of it. I watch the small chicks run around, chirping wildly and flapping their little wings, as this unruly group of children watches. They bounce off one another. Their fluffy feathers make them look like tiny sumo wrestlers. I decide I'd rather sit here and watch the uncaring balls of energy and plush than sit through anything else. Even though none of these baby chicks are mine. See, everyone in the class had been assigned an egg to watch. Mine was number 11. I stared at it, intently, waiting, waiting for it to hatch, but not every egg hatched. We would stand there, watching them when we could, and I would look at none other than number 11. Come on, you can do it! It was still, but I was hopeful. I really wanted my egg to hatch soon. It didn't though. The teacher tells us that not every egg hatches, that it's normal sometimes, but she never explains why. It's just something that happens, something that can't be avoided, she says. When it became clear that number 11 wouldn't hatch, our class got another baby chick yesterday. Apparently this other class had too many and that their teacher didn't have time for this one. My teacher did, since we were short, so she accepted the baby chick into our cardboard box. It was brought in not long after hatching, its body still a fresh pink as it laid on its side, so much more vulnerable than the other ones around it. It wiggled like a worm curling in on itself, useless and unhelpful. But it has to be better today, right? At least. That's what a part of me clings to. I can tell my teacher is more reserved about this. The new chick can't avoid the others. It lays still and unmoving. Like it isn't even there while the others bounce around it. Like bumper cars. The other chicks don't even realize the new one exists. I suddenly get it. And wait, it's it's getting trampled. It's almost like it's invisible. Maybe it shouldn't even exist in the first place. It's not strong enough. It's weak. (sighs) I'm in second grade now, and I don't get invited to all those birthday parties they're always having. My voice hardly leaves my mouth, and I freeze when it's necessary to answer the teacher's question. My friends never want to play with me. I mean, at lunch, we talk because we're all at the same table. But sometimes... I have trouble thinking of things to say that aren't random facts about animal poop or my older sister's life. I try to laugh and smile with them. Once recess starts, they all run in other directions. They bounce off of each other, and I try to keep up, but they never slow down. Alexis is one of them. Her smile is bright and friendly. She wants me? To join whatever game she's going to play with her other friends? They just need to be found first, so she tells me to wait by a group of imposing trees that separates the playground from the blacktop. While I wait, I walk in circles around the trees, staring at the bumpy bark while avoiding the roots exposed to the air. I try to jump from tree root to tree root without falling or losing my balance. No one else really plays in this area, but it's fine. I have friends coming back over here, and we're going to play this new game that Alexis knows. But then, the whistle blows. The shouts of the lunch aides tell me that our time outside is over? Recess ended? Already? I look around for my friends as the three classes make a line behind their respective aide. I see them, but they don't seem to see me. Maybe I should follow them closer next time? I thought we were going to play that one game. Am I too patient, or did she want me to help her find the others? I guess she doesn't want me to be her friend since I'm not helpful enough. I'll try harder next time. Alexis doesn't ask again, so there isn't a next time. I'm in third grade now, so I'm definitely better off than before. I realize, since three is bigger than two. Plus, I have a friend, Jamie. She is blonde with smiling eyes that make you want to like her. This time, I will make sure to help my friend with whatever she needs, and I won't get left behind. We get along well, but she's always very busy, so going over our house is hard to do. Still, I'm doing a good job. We even get to sit next to each other in class during one of the seating changes. But Kelly is also seated near us. She always talks about cats and cries all the time. I'm not supposed to be friends with her. Jamie isn't, and the rest of the class makes fun of her. I don't think she knows, though. I'm the same as Kelly, I realized one day. I'm annoying. One of Jamie's friends, so by extension, one of mine, tells me so. She says, Jamie's like the cheese, and you're the rat chasing after her. She tells me this with a matter-of-fact tone. She delivers this news with as much grace as a charging bull. A warm, burning sensation forms in my eyes as my throat begins to tighten. The drops start to rain from my eyes anyway. I can't stop them. That was the end of my orbit around the popular sphere. Trying to stick close didn't work either, I guess. At home, I'm a middle child, somewhat. I can't break through the shadow that my older sister casts, but I'm used to it. When we play with our Lego dragons, I know I'm outclassed. She has to win being older and better than me. She has to get more recognition because of her age and the talent she has. I always have to play a certain role in the games my sisters and I come up with. I have the backseat roles, the sidekick roles. Our dragons are battling. She's always the red one. If I want to be the red army, it's not allowed. She asks me to lose in the game. I make my dragon tell hers that I'll let her win. Promptly, my dragon will fall from the sky, and my army is destroyed or comes under her control. But if my sister is happy and still wants to play games with me, it's okay to be weak, to lose. It's just a game. And at least I have someone to play with sometimes. Someone who actually talks to me. Hey, Melissa. I'm shocked one day to hear in the lunchroom. Do you have 25 cents? I look up. Angela was talking to me? We hardly glance at one another, and now he's asking me something? I'm silent for a second. I don't answer him right away. Being spoken to always throws me. With my brain removing the cobwebs that it's collected after long periods of never speaking to anyone directly, I say the only word that comes to my mind. Why? I ask. With a glimmer in his eye that's... Is it... Almost pitiful, he says how he needs to get some cookies. Chocolate chip, to be exact. I slowly pull out my change container. It's adorned with cute little monkeys. I'm not too surprised that I have that much. My parents let me keep the change when I buy lunch, and I don't usually spend any of the extra. I'm about to hand over the change. He starts to exude gratitude and is about to jump out of his seat when I pause. I've seen enough Judge Judy with my mother to know that money is a big deal for adults since they are always fighting over it. In fact, my mother has told me on numerous occasions that I should never lend out money to people because if you do, she says, it always causes problems. It'll ruin friendships and even families. I don't want to mess up any more than I am already and lose my family's approval. Mama will expect me to have change if I need it. What if she finds out I gave it away? But it's too late to change my mind. I'm already handing it over. And Angel looks so happy. He looks like he actually likes me. Likes talking to me. Wow. Still, I'm nervous. I need this money. What can I do to make sure he brings it back to me? The next thing I know, I'm hesitantly saying, Um, well, you're gonna have to give it back. I'll give it back tomorrow, he promises. The pleading look has returned, but he's still smiling. How do I know he'll give me back my 25 cents? Suddenly, a thought occurs to me. There should be a punishment if he doesn't. I pull out the worshipped coin, a quarter, and hold it in my tiny fist. On the spot, I come up with a seemingly foolproof plan, that which I explain incredibly eloquently, by the way. A sure surprise to both Angelo and to me. Every day you're late, excluding weekends, of course. I will add 10 cents onto the existing amount you owe. I tell him, looking him straight in the eyes. He readily agrees, snatching the quarter. True to his word, I receive my quarter the very next day. I thank him for the return, then turn my focus back to lunch. My plan worked! I didn't have to tell my mom I had lost money! My relief is interrupted when two different kids start talking to me, Dean and Patrick. I've known Dean since preschool, so his presence isn't that surprising, even though we never talk as much as before. But I've never had a conversation with Patrick before. Both have the same question. Can I borrow money? Dean needs 50 cents, and Patrick needs a dollar. A whole dollar? But I have plenty with me, so I give them the same rules as the first guy. On the next day, I approach them during lunch for the money they owe. Both don't have it. I quickly crunch the numbers and tell them what the new amount I need back is. This is how the next few days go. Admittedly, I'm a little nervous, but I don't show them that. I just cross my arms and try to give them the fiercest glare my small frame can muster. Soon. Dean gives me the owed amount, which has now grown by 30 cents. Patrick still owes, though. I wear my hair in pigtails on the day the idea strikes me that maybe the people who are late in returns need more motivation. I start to play tag with the guys and forget trying to fit in with the girls. After all, the guys are the only ones borrowing money, and wearing pink skirts or bows in my hair is, inconvenient anyway. The game is simple. I chase the guys around the playground, punching and kicking them with all of my might. They play along and they laugh, but Patrick? He gives me that five dollars he now owes me the day after this game starts. In the upcoming weeks, at least four kids ask me for money almost every day. I can barely keep everyone straight, Everyone's always talking to me, needing me, coming up to me. It's only during lunch that this happens, but still, it's fun. I know it'd be weird if the teachers saw me collecting money during snack time. So, I'm covert, even when I'm busy. I quietly tell people to wait their turn to talk to me while I handle business and joke with my newest clients. Everyone knows I can deliver, and they also know that they have to deliver, too. The lunch don't ever notice my loan sharking ring, though. But that doesn't surprise me. They never notice the times I cry during recess, either. And within a few months, I'm making upwards of a dollar extra a week. But I don't really care about the extra money. I care that I'm not getting trampled like that pathetic baby chick anymore. I care that they get nervous when they look at me now. I have something they want. And I'm not an idiot. I know that's all it is, but I don't care. At least I'm never completely lonely anymore. Never stuck with nothing to say, nothing to add, nothing to offer. My reign lasts until sixth grade. My reputation never reaches the other elementary schools and it dies down when we get older. I guess they can get their money elsewhere now. Eventually, I fade quietly back into the background again. That's my place. And you know what? I'm okay with that.
2: Oh! <laughs> oh my. Melissa, I have to say, I was laughing so hard listening to this story. The tone mm. of this piece is just perfect. I have to say, I have never met a third grader with such (laughs) entrepreneurial (laughs) capabilities. (laughs) Yes, girl. You were like a little banker running the school. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I
4: love it.
1: Thanks. Admirable. (laughs) You know, know, I wish I still had all that, but, you know, it's fine. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, no
4: problem, you know. And nothing else going on.
1: <laughs> oh, Melissa. If you guys recognize Melissa's voice, it's because she's been on the podcast before. So oh. this is her second run on season two. Woo. We just had to... <laughs> she keeps making great stories, so we keep bringing her back. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
3: we're not.
4: Oh. All right. Thanks for having me. Again.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. Something that we're all definitely wondering yeah did your parents ever find out that you were making this profit at school i get the sense that you felt invisible at school but maybe not at home
4: oh oh yeah they found out (laughs) oh my god it was at like a christmas dinner or something like that and i was just talking about it and with this certain part of my dad's side of the family so like my whole family found out in this one day And they were all very proud of me. They were like, (laughs) Yeah, yes,
1: (laughs) yes. yes." Just
5: like we are. (laughs) And then
4: they proceeded to tell me how it was um part of my family's history on my dad's side. Where we they were full of bookies and, you know, mob people. So uh. keeping traditions, you know. Keeping tradition.
1: (laughs) All
2: right. (laughs) That's amazing. And you just like did it without even knowing, so it's like in jeans.
1: <laughs> yeah, just I was stuff. like, I didn't, know. I didn't even know it was loan just sharking. Just it was like, oh. I just knew you were making some money. Yeah, just Ooh. not losing it, you know? <laughs>
4: <laughs> didn't want to face that motherly wrath.
1: <laughs> oh, Melissa. Okay, I laughed when you described the little chick as useless and unhelpful. Not the description that I was expecting for a little chick, and for the moment when you say the lines they all run in other directions once recess starts they bounce off of each other i try to keep up but they never slow down i see you as the chick this is the crucial moment that i not only think okay she's comparing herself to the chick but i can see you and see the chick and see that they are the same um And the reason for why I can see that so clearly is because the image of you in recess is very similar to the image of the chick when you say, it lays still and unmoving, like it isn't even there while the others bounce around it like bumper cars. Did you mean to make this comparison between both of you? And how come you chose this comparison in particular, of both you and the chick surrounded by others yet feeling alone?
4: Well, I want to say it was unintentional and it was just like magical, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I i would love to say that, but when I was writing it, I was like, what can I bring back to this moment? Like what kind of like, this was done for an assignment. So I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I just made something up. Not really. But it's like, I just threw something out there and I'm like, okay, I remember this time about baby chicks and I remember that one time. You had that sick one come in. And then I was like, oh, but loan sharking, that sounds fun too. I don't know how I connected it. I just like, well, actually, wait, I kind of know because <laughs> I, I kind of know. I view my childhood as very kind of dark because I'm not a happy person sometimes. But <laughs> I looked back and I remembered I cycled through friends basically every year because they just stopped talking to me. Or, you know, vice versa. We just didn't hang out because I don't for whatever reasons. I'm not even sure if this answers your question.
1: It does. It does.
4: Because while I was writing it, I didn't actually like think about it completely. It was more like subconsciously as just like a writer so yeah basically I kind of just want to weave those three ideas together to kind of show that obviously this lone sharking part of me was like not normal Mm -hmm. and it did surprise everyone when they found out it really was strange for the shy quiet girl who never says anything to suddenly do something like this
2: I really love that comparison and uh, one thing that caught my attention um, besides all the similarities between you and the chick as being uh, kind of like a lone wolf um, it's that it's the description that really caught my attention the useless and unhelpful because while you use that description for the chick I don't mm-hmm. sense that in how you feel about yourself throughout the piece mm-hmm. it's more like yeah I'm alone but you know what I'm going to do whatever it takes so that I can get friends and I'm going to make this happen and I'm not going to be like the chick so was that intentional in your piece and how like did you sit there and actually think oh like how can I make myself different and similar to the chick at the same time and how was that process for you all right
4: wow so many good questions (laughs) (laughs) all right so when I was writing it I'm glad to say that I don't feel about that myself like that <laughs> maybe a little bit when I was a little younger because you know you're a kid and you're like what the hell is going on with everything but I didn't want to show myself as like com- completely self-deprecating because I think that happens pretty well in my other pieces but, <laughs> <laughs> <Not> but <laughs> <enough of> that. <laughs> yeah and I so I have the chick to do that instead so oh, I can, yeah, the chick. Okay. <laughs> that's,
1: that's <smart. laughs> I
4: have like, if kind of, oh. so it's, it's like, it's kind of a part of me, but it's still something that's separate from me.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm going to try Yeah.
0: Yeah. The imagery <laughs> between the chick and you was like very, like, it was like really brilliant. Like how you co-related both things, how you like touch upon first the chick's like little history and then you go into the depth and like weave it into your own life and your own aspects with like these children that you interacted with in school and um yeah i really like enjoyed reading this piece because it's like it 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 took me back to my years in high school like for you it was elementary school for me it was high school so i felt like a real connection with this piece which is why like i really enjoyed it
2: yeah oh thanks yeah (laughs) I'm really curious, because you mentioned that you don't see an egg hatch. So mm-hmm. did you see the egg hatch after the chick came to i mean, this is like really random. But oh, I'm just really did number eleven actually <laughs> yeah, ever hatch? Yeah. I mean like <laughs> I know that you like your classroom adopted this new little yeah. chick into the classroom, but you said that you watched you were trying to really watch uh, an egg hatch, very Yeah, intently, number eleven. And then it didn't and that <laughs> so did on. you ever like find another egg?
4: Did, <laughs> or did or? I did I adopt another <laughs> egg just into really my curious. heart? <laughs> um not really. No. Okay. <laughs> I kind of <laughs> adopted that um uh, very uh ill chick into my heart. <laughs> but never, never no, number 11 died.
2: Oh.
1: oh that's so sad. <laughs> okay. Oh. <laughs> she became a bacon yeah. egg and cheese ass. <laughs> 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 so <laughs> well, uh, Melissa, do you feel like you've hatched?
4: Um I don't want to say I've hatched per se. I feel like I'm definitely farther along in the embryonic stage of egg growth. <laughs> 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 Maybe close, but I don't, I think, um, like, for mostly everyone in life, we can always improve. Hopefully. I don't want to say I hatched yet, because I'm still not completely comfortable with everything, but it's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's good. That's
2: really honest. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay.
4: How um,
2: I love that this um, takes place in how do you say little school, like in, elementary. like elementary yeah. school. Oh, yeah, it's elementary. yeah, um So how do you like how do you feel that uh, like the relationship then? Uh, um, and how do you see yourself different now from who you were in the piece to who you are now?
4: Well, I'm doing this podcast, which is probably something I wouldn't have done in elementary <laughs> school. Where are uh, you? <laughs> So I definitely feel like through my experiences with people and making friends with the amazing people that I have around me now, it's really helped me, you know, come closer to that hatching. Uh,
1: (laughs) Melissa. Well, thank you for coming here, chick number five. Thank you for bringing us another amazing story and for letting us talk to you and pick your brain.
4: Uh, Thanks for having me again. (laughs) It's great, guys. I love it.
1: Thanks, Melissa.
2: In our last story of the night, Steven De La Cruz takes care of business in a way that surprises even him. Steven has been on the podcast not only as a host, but as an author as well. He is a New York City native. He's currently an English major at John Jay and works with an integrated co-teaching classroom in an elementary school in Queens. It was here that he realized he wants to be a teacher. He hopes to travel in the future and learn local legends, myths, and more from the places he hopes to visit. When he isn't writing or cramming for an exam, you'll find him buried in a book, possibly rereading his favorite novel, Catch-22. If he's not spending time with friends and family, he's saving some town or city with friends in their weekly Dungeons and Dragons campaign.
0: Let's take a listen to Stephen's piece, Party Favors.
5: I always knew my big brother wasn't like most people's brothers. When my brother Max would stumble into our apartment well past midnight every night, my mother would shake her head with the same scornful reproach she had for my father when he would do the same. Those nights, she'd find him throwing up in the sink. In the darkness, I could see her face distorted with anger as my brother swayed, as if some strong breeze had found its way into our cozy apartment. Some nights, she would grab a broom and hit him, and he would just stand there taking the blows with a confused grin. I'd tug on her shirt and ask, Why are you trying to send him away? Again? Twice before, she sent him to live with our grandmother in the Dominican Republic, because he hung out with the wrong kids. On those nights, my mother would look down at me, the feet washing over her face. She'd put the broom down and return to her room. Max would flash me a smile and stumble toward his bed. I hope he notices the second place spelling bee award I taped to his door earlier today, I thought one night, when he'd gotten home particularly late. He was never home those days, so I'd write little notes in my best penmanship, detailing my day for him. I knew I couldn't tape my math trophies onto the door, so I'd have to wait to show him next time he came home early. At least twice a month, Max would come home, bearing gifts for the family, purses our mother would never use, and sneakers or clothes for my sister and I. My sister and I would be ecstatic to try on our new clothes and show them off at school the next day. On those days, I would tell the few friends I had of my big brother how he'd gotten me this stuff. My mother always looked sad when he came home bearing gifts. She knew what I didn't. When I was 16, Max moved out of his ex-girlfriend's apartment to a place 10 to 15 minutes away from my house. Every weekend, I visited him, and I always came carrying our mother's home-cooked meals, like arroz con pollo, yabichuela, and ceviche, It was good, but it came seasoned with her worries and regrets. By sending me, she was killing two birds with one stone. She'd get me out of my room and away from my computer, but through me, she'd also get to check on my brother. His apartment had two bedrooms, one for himself and one for his friends. However, so many of them slept over that someone was always on the couch and on the living room floor. I'd always look forward to meeting his friends on those weekends. I'd come home with mom's food. I'd always secretly hope they'd tell him what a great little brother he had. I'm not sure if they ever did. I'd stay there and play Call of Duty with his boys. Until it got late, or once they tired of me finding new and more exciting handicaps to beat them with. Sometimes, we'd watch movies, and I had to contain myself from making comments on how most of the stunts we saw weren't physically possible. One day, I saw a hole no bigger than a nickel in his TV, and so I asked one of his friends what happened. The short, stocky one, who always slept on the couch, who always talked about wanting to beat the shit out of anyone, the one they called Little Steve, flashed his stained, jagged, glass-like teeth and said with a twinge of pride, That was me. He went on to explain that the people from a few doors down had caused a stir, and my brother had sent him back to the apartment to grab my brother's 9mm. However, Steve had been smoking weed, taking painkillers, and drinking, like usual. So he accidentally squeezed the trigger and blew a hole into the TV and the wall behind it. I scanned his dull bloodshot eyes, and I could tell he was still too fucked up to be lying. Maybe he wasn't sober enough to realize that if he hadn't prematurely blown a hole into the TV, he might have put one in someone else. I didn't question why my brother had a gun then, but I always assumed it was just for self-defense. My brother wasn't the violent type, but he did always tell me to defend our younger sister and myself if necessary. It turned out, my sister never needed anyone to defend her. She was the one who would stand up for me when I couldn't. Then again, by now, I knew what he really did for a living. It made sense for him to have one in his home as a precaution, but knowing that gun was there always made me a little nervous. But I couldn't act like it. I had to act like this was normal. I just helped white people party, Max had said in between pulls of his blunt and with a seriousness that made me laugh way harder than I should have. He seemed to catch my infectious fit of laughter which was really just my way of trying not to look nervous. We were alone in the house that night, which was rare. He was trying to explain to me that he was a drug dealer, but I had already figured it out. By the time I was 13, I had my suspicions, and his baby mama had confirmed them when she called him a street pharmacist. I've known for a long time, I replied, casually, trying to act like it was no big deal. He gave me the saddest smile I'd ever seen that night. I actually wished that I'd feigned ignorance. I've always kept my distance from you and Natalie, he continued that night, because I didn't want to expose you two to this. I didn't want you to become like me, he paused. The quiet was weird because my brother Max always knew what to say. Me, on the other hand, I'd always forget that I was even supposed to move my mouth and make sounds called words in front of beautiful girls and large crowds, or sometimes even in class, even though I always knew the answer. He finally continued as his eyes seemed to grow as wet as the windows behind him, covered in a thin stream of rain. I'm sorry I haven't always been there, he'd finished. I shook my head and said, you don't have to apologize. I had long forgiven him for not being there. I'd invited him to every flu recital, every spelling bee, and every other event in my life, and he never made it to any of them. That was just expected. In the beginning, I'd always look for his face amongst a crowd of unfamiliar faces, But eventually, I stopped. I knew Max wouldn't be there, but he was always there whenever I needed new shoes, clothes, or a new winter coat, when my dad would sit on the couch and sulk because he had lost most of his money gambling. I had begun to see Max as my second dad, not the kind who was around to go to his kid's stuff, but the kind who actually could provide for his family. I was proud of him for that, no matter how he did it. I didn't realize it until i was walking back home that night that he was probably apologizing for more than not just being there see after my mom found out that max was dealing she moved us from the lower east side to williamsburg when i was six i think she felt that she had failed my brother and she was determined not to fail my sister and i because of what he'd done with freedom my sister and i never got to go outside and play with our friends after school or on the weekends instead She tried to keep us sedated and oblivious to the temptations outside with toys, books, and video games. The only places I became truly familiar with were either virtual or imaginary. On those beautiful summer days that I hated, the ones filled with laughter and the hollow clang of metallic bats striking baseballs down the street, I'd hold the bars of the window and watch the kids play in the park across the street for a while before closing my eyes and placing myself down there with them. So... I guess it was because of him that my mom was afraid to let me go outside all those years. Why'd she make sure I never got the chance to learn how to hang out on the street or even how to talk much to the other kids out there? If I did, she must have figured I'd eventually learn about bad stuff from them, would learn to get used to it, how to deal with it, how to make it work for me, like Max had. She'd been successful. I never learned. Never learned how to play cool or act natural or how to not visibly sweat at even the thought of stuff like baggies of weed and 9 millimeter guns hidden behind the Jordans and Tims on the closet floor. Everyone knew that about me. Everyone knew that I wasn't like Max. Couldn't keep cool, that I couldn't even dream of being like him or doing what he did. Everyone knew my mom had succeeded in making me a dweeb. And so... Two years later, on the day that Max's new girlfriend Mia tells me that I have to operate Max's work phone while she runs errands, I am totally shocked. I don't even believe her. Me? What? Wait. Shocked and scared from years of getting hit in the face with sports equipment in gym class, I instinctively hold my hands up to shield my glasses as she throws the phone towards me from across the room. I brace for impact. But nothing. I put my hands down and look to my right. The phone just lays there beside me on the couch, still staring at me. Of course I hadn't even tried to catch it, I think, a little embarrassed. I have to man the work phone? I'm suddenly aware that my feet are on the coffee table and I take them down since it's not really polite. Mia stares at me with a crooked smirk. She says it again. I have to, have to work the phone since she has to go to the drugstore to pick up her eye drops and Max's anti-seizure meds. Max is asleep in the next room. He had a seizure two days prior and had finally gotten home from the hospital. He was heavily sedated by the painkillers his doctor had prescribed him, so I knew there was no way he could work the phone. During his seizure, he had dislocated his shoulder and torn something. He'd have to get a metal plate inserted into his shoulder the following week. This one was bad, but at least it wasn't as bad as the one last year, the one that had left him in the hospital for several days and in an induced sleep after he had nearly bitten his tongue off. The doctor had explained that the concussion he received in his car accident a few years prior had probably damaged a part of his brain causing the seizures. He suggested a surgery that would remove a small sliver of the brain believed to cause seizures, but Max refused when he heard about it. He says he didn't want anyone poking around in his head. Earlier that day, I'd sat next to him, wishing there was something I could do, anything, to help him. But the work phone? I have to man the work phone? Me? Max would never let me even touch this phone, no less answer it. I think about telling Mia that I can't, that Max won't let me, that this, really, I can't. I want to tell her I'm terrible talking to people on the phone, and I don't even know anything about drugs. I don't know what to say. What do I even say? Wait, I want to scream at her as she walks out the door, but I don't. I don't say anything as I stare at the black iPhone with the dent on the bottom left corner and the fine cracks that snake upward from the dent. The damage I had made when I hastily tried to give Max the phone and dropped it on the tiled floor a few months back. What the fuck am I going to do if this thing fucking rings? What am I going to say to these people about their drugs? I don't even know what shit's called or what they do. Hell, the last drug I'd taken was a baby aspirin, since I don't like to take too high of a dose even when I have a cold. I know next to nothing about drugs. Except what I learned in my high school chemistry class. Oh, okay, okay, so okay, cocaine and ecstasy are stimulants. Meth, heroin, alcohol, are all depressants. Okay, oh, okay. I continue going through the scientific terms that I know in my head. Thinking of what stimulants do, why they're bad, how they can kill you. Okay, okay, calm down. No one is even calling. It's fine. <sighs> calm the fuck down, Steven, I tell myself. I walk over to the fridge and grab an open bottle of red wine. I cock my head back and just gulp down whatever I can. This'll help, right? I pace around the living room with my bottle of red wine in tow, three, four, maybe nine times before I become aware of the large plastic blue barrel nestling in the corner of the living room, the one Max uses to send clothes to the needy in the American public. There's something atop of the barrel and underneath a couple of my old t-shirts. What is, what the fuck? I stared down at the black metallic-looking brick that's the top of the barrel. Now, I may not know much, but i played enough Call of Duty to know that I'm staring a MAC-10 right in the face. This submachine gun is capable of pumping something or someone with more holes than a honeycomb in a matter of seconds. Suddenly, the 9mm seems like nothing. This thing was for mowing down your enemies to send them and any bystander near them off Tony Montana style. Who has the number to this phone that we need a gun like this around? I can't. I'm barely breathing now, pacing around, terrified of both the gun and the phone, trying to figure out how long it'll be until Mia's back when... (gasps) A ringtone sounds. It's an unknown number. I'm hesitant to pick it up. Answer the phone, I scream to myself. (sighs) It's Cabbage Mouth, Max's childhood friend, the guy who makes deliveries. I sigh in relief because at least he's not a customer. He explains that Mia told him I'm holding down the fort, and he proceeds to ask if I could ready several large and small bags for tonight. He explains how many grams go into different sized bags and what to do. Okay, okay, I can can do this. I ask him about the prices and what he has in stock. This is a lot of information. I grab a pen and notepad off the coffee table and jot everything down as quickly as possible. I open the closet. Near the floor is a small sliding door and inside is a piece of glass with what seems to be a model of a snowy mountain, but I know better. I grab the rectangular piece of glass and gingerly shuffle towards the coffee table. I know that I'm holding thousands of dollars in cocaine and I have two left feet. Please don't trip now. Do not spill this. Do not spill this. If you're out there, God, you will do me this solid and you won't let me trip while I hold this cocaine that I'm about to put in baggies, that I have to sell if anyone calls. I make it safely to the coffee table. I find the baggies, the scale, and the teaspoon I'll be using to measure out the bags. I sit on the couch and just stare at the majestic white peak in front of me. It reminds me of that scene in Scarface where Tony buries his nose in a pile of cocaine and frosts his nose with the white substance. I think about doing it, but obviously I don't. As I fall into the rhythm of stuffing the baggies, I actually start to feel better. I got this, I think. I can do this. I can do this. By the time I'm done with the bags, I notice my fingertips are white. If you rub cocaine against your gums, it'll numb it out. It's a fact. I know this because I learned it when I had a brief obsession with reading random Wikipedia articles for fun. I also knew that cocaine was used by dentists long ago, but put now putting it in your mouth is done to check for quality. At least, that's what they do in movies. I stare at my fingers, terrified of them. I can't even drink coffee because it makes me jittery and anxious. This shit would probably kill me if I even thought about rubbing it against my gums. I rush to the bathroom and wash my hands vigorously. I look at myself in the mirror. You definitely don't look like a drug dealer, I think to the reflected me. My thick black frames and my Metallica t-shirt and the shredded skinny jeans I see in the reflection seem to agree. I suddenly worry that I haven't cleaned up enough. What if the cops decide to raid the place today of all days? What if they raid someone else's place later and find this stuff? My fingerprints are all over those baggies. Shit. I grab two rags, one to hold the bags and the other to wipe off my prints. I start wiping all of them. Can't be too careful. Someone's going to call any minute now, and who knows if they'll be on NARC. I start strategizing on how to keep the conversation short, short enough that they can't triangulate where I am. Fuck me, man, fuck, why am I here? I could just go, I mean, I just finished the bags, I could be home in an hour, Mia would be back soon, and besides, Max wouldn't even want me doing this. But you're the only one who can do this for him right now. And then it happens. The phone rings. I love it when you call me big papa, Blast out of my left pocket as the work phone goes off. I jump out of my seat and flounder around. I squeeze my fingers into my way-too-tight pockets and struggle to pull the phone out between my sweaty fingers. It fumbles, and I almost drop it before finally grabbing a steady hold of it. The name Stuart G splays across the black background. Stuart G? Who the fuck is Stuart G? Calm down! You have to answer this phone before it stops ringing! Answer the phone! Answer! I take a deep breath and finally put the phone to my ear. I open my mouth to say something, but all brain functioning seems to cease. When I finally wrestle control over my mouth and tongue, all it will do is make random sounds. I hear myself botching the call. Uh, 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 I answer. Stuart G doesn't seem to care. Yo Frankie, what's up my man? I hear from what I assume must be the whitest and most chipper man I've ever heard. Why the fuck is this guy so fucking happy? Is this a setup? Who the fuck is Frankie? Then it dawns on me suddenly that my brother Max isn't dumb enough to use his real name for stuff like this. Frankie must be his alias. Now that's smart. Nice, Max. Okay. Okay, I got this. I just need to make the words happen because that's a thing. Words are a thing. Uh, uh, hey. I managed to stutter out through deep breaths after a pause that is probably way too long. You're not Frankie, is all Stuart says, and I can tell he's lost a little bit of his pep. His voice has dropped an octave. What do I do now? He's gonna think I'm a narc. Shit. Nah, I say, trying my absolute hardest to sound natural, cool. Together, all the things I'm not. Fr- Frankie's a little busy right now, but my name is <clears throat> my name is Tom. M- my bad, but um, I, I can help you out until Frankie's done with what he's doing. I think about what Frankie is really doing down the hall and wish more than anything he'd be done feeling like shit that he could come take this call. Help me by bailing me out. Help me, like he always says. Great, I'll take one large, and what kind of E do you have? I anxiously search the list that I got from Cabbage, my cheat sheet, and respond, Well, we've only got Lady G's right now, Stuart. I'm sorry. Wait, why am I apologizing? Is that weird? Do drug dealers apologize? Of Of course they don't. Shit, and I just used his name? Is that weird? He answers back, Oh, those are fine, Tom. So how many can I take? oh, uh, I think about what I've learned about overdosing, how it's not good to mix uppers and downers or take too much before I say, uh, just one or two if you're mixing with other stuff, otherwise you'll overdose on. I don't get to finish my sentence before Stuart begins laughing so hard he's snorting. Fuck you then, Stuart. I hope you fucking OD, I think to myself. He takes a few seconds to compose himself before continuing. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Sorry. I meant to say, how many could I get? I need at least 20 or so for my friends, and their friends, for this party we're attending. We've got a lot more than that, I say, trying to laugh at myself for giving advice to someone who seems to be an expert in taking drugs. I take down the address of Stuart's condo and text it to Cabbage. <sighs> okay. So I just have to keep track of this. have to keep things organized. Okay. O- okay. I japped down 25 e-pills and deducted it from the list I have of our inventory. Wait, whoa. I crunched the numbers and realized I just made $600 with the phone. Damn, that wasn't so bad. I put my feet up on the coffee table, not caring if it's polite or not. I can put my feet where I want. I turn up the TV and put on a movie. The next call is almost identical to the first, except I don't stutter like some idiot this time. They ask for two large bags because they're having a party at some luxurious hotel with a friend and some ladies, who I assume are high-end escorts. No problem, I think, as I wrap up the deal. By 8.30, the phone is ringing every 10 or 15 minutes. Each call gets easier than the next, and soon, I'm actually sort of having fun. Especially when some girl listed on the work phone as sweetheart invites me to a rooftop party I imagine this is how my brother networks and gets new clients. Maybe I should go, I think. I think about all the rooftop parties I've seen in movies. Pretty girls in tight black dresses, music so loud that you can feel it against the beat of your chest, and that one guy with money and narcotics sitting in the back surrounded by people vying for his attention. That could be me. My phone buzzes and I snap back to reality. Yeah, right. If I were to somehow show up, what would I do? Just go up to security and say, Hey, I'm Tom the dealer. Sweetheart invited me. They'd probably laugh right in my face because I'm the last thing they'd expect from a drug dealer. Fuck that. I was good at my new job. Sort of. (sighs) When Mia comes back with the meds and some food, I'm still on the phone with the clients. So engrossed in my new business, I don't even notice she's back until I see a figure in my peripheral and nearly jump out of my seat. I finish with the client and notice my feet are still on the coffee table. I think about moving them. Now that she's here and everything, but as I watch her bring me my food over to the couch, I decide to leave him there. She serves me there with my feet up like that, and I eat on the couch like this is all normal or something. She asks me for the phone, but I just smile and say, I got this. It's not a big deal. In fact, I don't hand it off the phone until way later when two of Max's friends come by, one to pick up the bags for cabbage and one who says he'll take care of the phone from now on. I will hand it over and watch him as he scrolls through the phone and then makes a call. I watch him as he enters the bedroom, and he closes the door behind him with the phone against his ear. (sighs) Without the phone, I grow bored, and I check up on Max one last time before I put on my coat to go home. He's still asleep. Mia gives me a hug and thanks me for helping out. Don't worry, she says. I won't tell him that you were the one doing the calls. I'll tell the other guys not to mention it to him either. Take care, she says, after a quick peck on the cheek and another hug. I'm confused and kind of sad as I get into the taxi she has waiting for me. Why can't Max know that I helped? I mean, I know he doesn't want me dealing, but I'm older now. And he couldn't do it. He's sick. He'll be happy to hear that I stepped up, that I actually didn't botch the calls, and that I was good at it. Maybe I should have left my cheat sheet on his nightstand, so when he woke up, he'd be surprised that his kid brother made about three grand in his stead. But... I don't think a note will cut it this time. I decide that I'm going to tell Max everything next time and that we're going to laugh about it. I'll tell him about my first call with Stuart and how nervous I was. It'll be hilarious. I can't wait until Max is better so I can tell him what I did today. A play-by-play, only not on his door this time, not like the spelling bee certificates and the trip forms that I leave in hopes that he's chaperoned one of them. I'll tell him myself, and we'll laugh, and he'll be proud. But then... I remember that day in the apartment when Max apologized to me for never being there. I didn't want you to become like me, he'd said. I remember that sad smile he'd given me when I told him I knew. How he clearly wished I didn't know. How, like Mom, he'd wanted so badly to protect me from this stuff, even if it meant never being around or making sure I didn't know anyone from the neighborhood, even if it meant me being alone all the time with no brother and few friends. It was best if I never told him, I suddenly knew. If I forgot about the Mac-10 sitting atop of the barrel, if I forgot about Frankie and about my hours as Tom. I guess Tom would have to lay down his mantle as a drug star and move into hiding. He'd have to forget about Stuart, who was out there somewhere distributing my drugs to his friends tonight. I hope he's having fun, I think. I hope that everyone I spoke to was enjoying themselves right now that none of them would overdose or do something they could never take back because of what I'd sold them. And that's when I really understood why Max had said his job was just to help people party, to help people have fun. It was a lot easier to pretend that I didn't do anything that night except help rich kids by selling them expensive party favors so they could cut loose for a night. But I knew, deep down, that this was more than that. And so did Max. That's why he didn't want me doing this. No, I couldn't tell him what I'd done. I'd have to keep it a secret. This was what was best for my brother, I understood. And it was best for me too. Uh,
1: Steven, I know this story so well. But the overarching kind of effect that it always has about so much more than just party favors is always so impactful to me and i just love it a lot i always get feels and i always cry a lot So thank you for being <laughs> here
0: again for the second time this is your second time here
5: yes um well it's the second time sharing a story uh but yeah. um well thank you for your feelings <laughs> <laughs> i i will <laughs> i will gladly I take them <laughs> uh, <laughs> talking, put them away in my pockets, <laughs> pockets actually. storing away my feelings exactly um but I, I'm very glad that you like this piece that, that, um you know, took the time to bring me on here because you, you all enjoyed it so much. Thank you.
3: Thank you're you're
2: you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love the title, um, Party Favors. I think it's so, uh it's so unique. I feel like it's um, very creative and it fits really well with, uh, with your piece because you're literally doing party favors for, for, quote-unquote, for people who uh, do use drugs. But I love the way that you talk about... um the business you're taking care of business but i, I specifically really loved your nervousness before <laughs> handling the business and the contrast <laughs> of you like no 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 i can't do it and then like you actually do it and you're like <laughs> yes i'm about to do this
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah so when tom comes out
2: yeah exactly talk a little more about that i'd love to to know like what were you feeling right before you were about to handle the phone and you mentioned your mom a little bit so i'm really curious to know yeah if like she was like in your head saying something or like um, what was, what were you thinking?
5: So, was a, that was a really loaded question, but for the <laughs> yeah. first part, um, the title. The the title, it just kind of came to me when I was sitting and I, I, I'm so bad with titles. I was like, I can't think of a title for this damn piece. And then um, I think one of my nieces is having a birthday soon and my sister's like, oh, I need to go to Party City so I can go get some party favors. And then it just like hit me. And then like the thing my brother said again, you know, I, I just helped white people party and because it really diminished what the drugs were and that was a way of like coping. Him saying that he just helped people party was, you know, um, was, you know, just trying to diminish the, that he, you know, he dealt drugs and he, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it fit. Um, but as to, when, when I was on the phone, I didn't think about my mom. <laughs> it was just like, just so in the moment. Um, I, I was actually, you know, thinking a little bit of my brother, um, and you know, like, what the hell was I gonna do? How was I gonna talk to these people? Because I'm so bad at talking to people uh, <laughs> that I don't know, and <laughs> so it. W- I was just really nervous, and I didn't give it much thought. Um, but actually, afterward, after reading, I mean, after after writing this piece, um, and then re, you know, reading reading it to like rehearse and other stuff. I did start to think about my mother a lot more, um, but not, but I, as that, I'm glad that I didn't pursue this life that my brother always told me never to pursue this life because I, I didn't want my mom to feel that she had failed again in, uh, you know, raising two drug dealers. <laughs> that was it. Oh my gosh. I remember when you,
1: I remember when you first brought up this concept to me and Melissa, actually, it was all in the same conversation. It was you, me and Melissa. And we were speaking about, um, Almost like the alter ego kind of side of you. It's a time when you fell out of your kind of nerdy phase. When both you, because well, we, you and Melissa, <laughs> you Ner- are a nerd. Still
5: a dweeb. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and still a dweeb. Um, and we were speaking about a time when you guys momentarily weren't that person so melissa brought up a, melissa the story that y- you guys heard per- previously and you brought up this story of party favors and it was just such a shock <laughs> 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 because you kind of stepped down from being steven and you did kind of like become tom <laughs> 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 So I was just like I, d- I. were there any other instances where you kind of in life i guess that you that helped you with this where you weren't necessarily steven but closer to a tom um uh
5: i guess i became less nervous around you know drugs and other illicit behaviors i guess after this incident you know I, and at that time i was 18 19 started going to parties and stuff you know i'd get offered drugs of course and it wasn't it wasn't as scary anymore um, you know, seeing it or even holding it, you know, I was ner- curious to see what some of these things had looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, I didn't do that, any of them. Cause <laughs> <laughs> Good, but, Good kid. Um, Mother, that's maybe listening. But, yeah, it was, it, I guess it did help me become a little less nervous around these kind of things. Because Yeah, I mean, I I'd mm-hmm. sold them to people. Like, what? I don't
2: know. <laughs> In the piece, you talk about um, possibly telling your brother, uh, like, your experience and how you handle business. Did you ever tell him? No. What happened?
5: No, no I, n- I never told him. Um and I I honestly my my brother passed away uh years back. This it was the yeah. he was the brother that passed away in the first piece yes. uh, that I wrote. But um I honestly would have never written this piece and probably never would have talked about it had he not died. Mm-hmm. Because um at first I used to think that I was that I was protecting my brother by never telling anyone that he was a drug dealer, except like very close friends who would, you know, see him coming in with, you know, a ten thousand dollar watch or um, in a Range Rover and whatnot, or, or like a giant chain, and they're like, "Like, what does your brother do?" And then, you know, I can't really beat around the bush. And he's like, "My brother's a drug dealer." <laughs> like, mm-hmm. just have to kind of tell him. But after he died, um, I still wasn't telling people. And I, and then at, thinking about this piece and writing it. It was in my first piece. I never mentioned what he did, and I didn't want to mention what he did because I didn't want people to um, misjudge him. Yes, and then this piece, I was like, "Screw that!" Like I know my brother was a good person, Um, and and you know, like we all have like this misconception, like not misconception, but this internalization that these that these people are less than human, Mm. and they're just thugs, and um, Mm. they're they you know, they sell poison and I mean, okay, kind of is poison, but, they, <laughs> but that they're, they're just people that feed off other people's weakness and there's nothing good about them, no redeeming mm-hmm. features about them. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and I, I, I can't have that. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. And, yeah, I okay. agree
0: with that so much because these people that are like deemed criminals are always like talked about like in a bad way and yeah. by politicians, by individuals of the higher class. But they, we deem to forget that the people that request these party favors are usually people that are, like, up the there. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that exactly. Yeah. So it's a very so, hypocritical area where, like, they're quick to, like, tell, oh, like... You're a drug dealer because you're like, let's say an example, because you're Hispanic, because you're. Poor. I was actually, I that, that but, was one reason I was
5: afraid of ever telling people. But I'm like, people.
0: y'all don't forget that y'all be calm <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> so, that's because
5: that's like it's That's another thing. It's it's a lot of people will, I think, uh, you know, as as a society, we are quick to blame either, um, you know, the person's uh, ethnicity, culture, or, um, even worse, their parents, because sometimes yeah. these parents don't really, especially, um. You know, uh, people of like lower income and ethnic groups, they don't have the same ability to put their kids in a good school or, you know, monitor who their friends are. Um, And that's what happened to my brother. He, you know, my mom was working. My dad was working. My dad would always get home by 12. My mom would get home by like 5. And, um, you know, my brother then after school had three or more hours to kind of just hang around on the street because he didn't have anything else to do. He'd hang out with his friends. And, you know, they were always up to good things. So and um yeah, and then we we blame these mothers who, you know, they're trying their hardest. Like my mom used yes. to beat my brother with a broom to stop to try and stop him from yeah, being a drug dealer. She had sure. nothing else. So she she tried to, you know, dissuade him that way. And you know, it didn't work. But yeah, yeah. she sent them to DR and um That's all really these fun. things. Mm-hmm. And you know, the you know, these moms, these these parents, they're trying. They I know that some of them may not, but a lot of them try because nobody wants their, you know, their son to end up dead or on the streets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, and it just really, really hurt. Like, always thinking about it, that, somebody would say, oh, you know, like, your, your mom is a bad mom because I've heard it before from other people mm-hmm. because well, my brother was a drug them. dealer. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. and like, I'll, I'll be <laughs> damned if anyone says that to my face because my mom, she like she can't she, my mom can't even read. Um, she, when we were younger, she would, you know, sit us beside her um, and she would try and help us with her homework. Even, you know, she was struggling to read or do like do the math problems with us. And she was always there. Um, so I'll be damned for my mother. If anyone says my mother's a bad mother, she tried her damnedest to provide for us and to make sure we, you know, we grew up to be good people. And I think my brother, although, you know, he did what he did, he was a good person nonetheless. Mm-hmm. I think so,
1: too. Yes. I think there's no one in this room that doubts that.
2: Yeah, I think it shows through your story and I'm really um, glad that you're talking about it and that you're talking about it in such an open way for listeners that are listening to us um, because the message I'm sure carries on for people that will now become aware that these issues are happening and yeah. they can then go and talk about it with other people who may not be aware. So that's good. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you so much. This piece so is much. amazing. Thank you for being here tonight and yeah.
0: sharing. <laughs> this, <laughs> for giving deep, deep, this deep deep deep
5: story So thank you
1: and um, this example of something so much bigger through a personal experience
5: thank you thank you for having me here sorry i kind of went on a little rant no but, good uh, wow. I don't know, I feel this like is something i it. I've let these people know yeah yes. Yes. yeah it's something i just felt you know. i've had you know on on my conscious for like a long time Good. and uh, i just felt like i needed to unburden myself and, I, I, and that was a great way of doing it this and writing this thing. Yeah. Just being unapologetic about it.
1: Especially in this kind of genre. Mm. Yeah. Thank you.
5: Thank you. Thank you thank you for having me.
2: Well, that concludes our third episode of the season, Taking Care of Business. We are all so excited to bring you new stories in the coming months, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about in creative nonfiction.
0: You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud podcasts on iTunes or SoundCloud.
1: And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon, and good night! (laughs) Good night!